Lord, I lift up my soul. I put my trust in you. Let none who look to you be put to shame. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, the first Sunday in Advent, this is an awesome responsibility, (laughs) one I am grateful for. Uh, And it's such a great time to have Scott back. I'm just really looking forward to seeing that baby, Amos. So, um, it's great to have a new baby. Uh, Nothing more uplifting than that, right? And we get to add, increase the number of children running around here. (laughs) It's just great. So, So, several years ago, and I'm going to be honest, it's 50 years ago because we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the event I'm about to talk about. I was a little girl of eight, of eight years of age, and my parents decided it would be a good idea to visit relatives in Florida during the Christmas break. So, road trip, right? Yeah, the three of us, the three of us, my mom, my father, and myself, we piled into a Volkswagen Squareback and headed out from Los Angeles to Key West. (laughs) This was an adventure that was to make a holiday uh, history. The year, as I said, was 1968. This was the year when NASA's Apollo 8 made its historic first manned mission to the moon. Nowadays, astronauts on board the International Space Station can record video messages talk to their family and friends on the ground, and even have their own holiday parties in space if they want to. But this was 50 years ago in 1968, and was the first Christmas that humans spent in space, and it was a little different. The Apollo 8 crew of three astronauts, uh, Frank Borman, Jim Lavelle, and Bill Anders, entered the moon's orbit on December 21st. And as it happens, my crew of three intrepid travelers, my mother, my father, and me, entered the city of Houston on the same day. We passed through Houston, very uh, eager, anticipating what was happening in space, NASA mission control uh, based in Houston. Uh, We passed through Houston, though, and by Christmas Eve, we'd reached New Orleans, where we celebrated Mass at the Catholic Church in the French Quarter. After uh, so-called midnight Mass, probably 9 o'clock at night, um, we we returned to our motel room where we eagerly watched um, what was happening on television. And I remember opening the one gift that I received that year, which was a plastic horse that I truly loved because I was a collector of these plastic horses. And it was a replica of the creature that I would later come to know in flesh uh, because a few short years later I became a rider, did trail rides, and as a teenager I was fortunate enough to own horses and to breed and train a horse with my mother. But that's a story for another day because I'm talking today about 1968, the Apollo crew, the Apollo 8 crew. Uh, We watched um, on Christmas Eve as the Apollo 8 circled the moon Uh, They circled the moon ten times and took the iconic Earth-rising photo on that day. Now, we've all seen that photograph hundreds or not thousands of times, the blue marble view of the Earth, right? You remember that? Buzz Aldrin would later describe the photo as a bright blue marble suspended in the blackness of space. 
I can only imagine that seeing the entire Earth rising above the lunar surface as a celestial body was an intense moment for those astronauts. What a gift. And it's a gift they gave us for our first look back at Earth as humans. While they were on a mission to explore the moon, they ended up discovering Earth. NASA's mission controllers reminded the astronauts that millions of Americans would be tuning in to watch and listen to their words. Uh, Later, astronaut Borman uh, recalled, we were told that on Christmas Eve we would have the largest audience that had ever listened to a human voice, and the only instructions we got from NASA was to do something appropriate. (laughs) So what could possibly be appropriate to that uh, circumstance? In that situation, what did the astronauts do? Well, they reached into the Bible, and they must have had a Bible on board Apollo 8. That fascinates me. (laughs) The limited space they had, they they had probably a Gideon's Bible or something, I don't know. But each crew member, they they decided uh, they would read the first ten verses of Genesis. So each crew member read from the book of Genesis. Simple and elegant. And they closed uh, their broadcast by saying, from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. After the Christmas Eve orbits, it was time to return the spacecraft to earth. Mission Control in Houston anxiously awaited word about whether or not the Apollo 8's engine burn had been successful in propelling the spacecraft out of the moon's gravitational pull so that the crew could return safely to Earth. To their great relief, the good news came when astronaut Lavelle radioed in, "Uh, Houston, affirmative, there is a Santa Claus. (laughs) The crew splashed down safely in the Pacific Ocean on December 27th. Now, the actual lunar landing, putting a man on the face of the Earth, was on the face of the moon, I'm sorry, was still a few months away in July of 69. But in this December of 1968, humans had visited the moon and orbited it for the first time and spent their first Christmas in space. So it was historic. Today's gospel reading puts this Apollo mission in mind because in the gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus says... There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations. Visions of celestial grandeur of an almighty God seated on a throne are not far-fetched in this telling, as Jesus foretells that the kingdom of heaven draws near, and in this time of redemption, people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But the gospel related through Luke doesn't stop there with that bombastic image. The very next verses tell us of a humble fig tree that sprouts leaves, which is supposed to be another sign that something earth-shattering is about to happen. Luke's gospel combines the celestial imagery with the earthly. And let me tell you why I think this is the case. It's so because the spiritual is hard to describe. And most of all, the Holy Spirit is the hardest of the Trinity to describe and to understand. Even Jesus acknowledges this. 
The spirit blows where it will, he says in John chapter 3, verse 8. We catch glimpses of this in the awe and grandeur of outer space, in images of earth rising, in the majesty of the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. And we can experience it in the earthiness of soil, water, sunshine, and air, as we cultivate and grow the plants that provide us with the sustenance that our physical bodies need. But these words are inadequate to the task of conveying the precise meaning of what is to come, what heaven on earth will be like, and why we are told to wait for an end that honestly seems ghastly and cataclysmic. To be honest, if I got the memo like this, I wouldn't show up on the day (laughs) of, of, of judgment. So why are we told to be on guard lest the coming of Christ catch us unexpectedly? Well, may the metaphor be with you. (laughs) All religious language is metaphor. It's the best we can do. Simply language, the words are inadequate. The Greek root of the word metaphor means to carry across a meaning. In other words, to get from one place to to another. Metaphors are the best we can do to deliver the message, and metaphors carry a substantial load. Canadian writer Donald Brown has said, that which is belittled in plain speech finds the respect it warrants in the subtleties of metaphor. So metaphor is the only possible language we have in which we dare to speak of the mystery of the coming of God incarnate. So let's try another metaphorical image the seed of the fruit of the fig tree. This metaphor shifts our focus from the human experience of things to the things themselves. We need to do a better job of recognizing the active participation of non-human forces in events. That's what the gospel teaches. What things make possible? Everything, not just plants and animals, but everything is alive and interconnected with a spiritual presence. All matter is pulsing with life. Things are alive in their complex relationships and entanglements and propensities for open-ended change. Most of the time we think of things as being passive and inanimate. And we humans are active subjects in the world uh, that can manipulate these things. But all things, whether animate or not, have the capacity to animate, to act, to produce effects that are as dramatic as a thundercloud and as subtle as a fig. Objects are alive because of their capacities to make a difference in the world, to shape the web of interrelationships of which they are a part. So when we think of the fig tree that is supposed to signal the coming of summer, Its purpose in the gospel is a sign of things to come, but we must also think of the seed within that which, uh, the seed within the fig that has its own purpose, which is to generate life. The seed has its own life cycle of birth, maturation, disease, death, and resurrection. Another example of things, the moon's gravitational pull which kept Apollo 8 in its lunar orbit. But the moon's gravitational pull on the Earth also is the main cause of the rise and the fall of the ocean tides, 
and causes the waves that Scott and Wes and Michael and legions of others surf on. And God willing, the omega-3 fatty acids that I take every morning strengthen my brain and heart health and lower my blood pressure. Thank God for things. Now, these are scientific facts that we can know and prove empirically. But I think another way to look at these things is to ask, how can they help us to know God and to know and love our neighbor? And the answer to that, I think, is to follow the path of divine knowing. Divine knowing uh, in the web of interconnections to know who God is, we have to let others know us. Divine knowing, or you might call it spiritual intuition, is actually an acceptance of someone else to know in us, through us, and for us, and even perhaps as us. This is our place in the divine dance of compassionate love, in our interconnectedness with heavenly bodies and with fig trees. It demands that we see others as ourselves, It demands what Franciscan monk Richard Rohr has called an identity transplant. So in this season of Advent, I wish for you God's compassion and love, for they are everlasting. May you abound in love for one another and for all things. And as the mustard seed for this week, I would ask that as you enter this season of of Advent, thinking of contemplation, as you enter into the season of Advent, that you contemplate what is to come. You contemplate your connectedness not only to other people in your lives, but also your connectedness to things. How do we want to connect with each other? And where do we find the hope and courage we need to be the spiritual presence our planet needs and that we need to be for each other? Amen. Amen.